How are we doing today? Does that sound really loud? Sounds okay. That sounds better. Great. Uh, so Russ just said we don't normally uh, talk about money, which is absolutely true. But uh, I also believe that it is Parents Weekend at Gonzaga. Is that right? How many uh, new parents or parents of students are here, maybe for the first time or uh, back again since last year? Raise your hand. Welcome. So I actually feel like this is a great time to talk about money uh, when we've got parents in the crowd, so I'm kind of excited about this. Uh, so this morning's uh, topic is going to be money and mission, and I, I want to begin, before we actually get into the like money portion of this, I want to begin uh, by making sure that we all have a uh, common understanding of mission. So when we say the word mission, when we talk about mission, I want to make sure that we all have a common understanding of what, in fact, we are talking about. So the dictionary uh, dictionary definition of mission states this, that it's an important assignment carried out for political, religious, or commercial purposes, typically involving travel. An important assignment carried out for political, religious, commercial purposes, typically involving travel. Travel. So the problem with this definition and why this isn't necessarily our definition is that it places priority on the task and it alludes to a geographical change. So essentially what this does, this definition kind of undergirds uh, an idea or it reduces mission to the idea of it's simply building houses in third world countries. There's a task to be done and you've got to go somewhere to do that task, right? Now building houses in third world countries is a Phenomenal thing. We should be doing that. But that's not all-encompassing of what mission is. Mission is much greater. Mission is much more comprehensive than just a task that needs to be done in a certain geographical location. So when we speak about mission at New Community, what we're really speaking about is something called the Missio Dei, which is a Latin theological term meaning the mission of God. And the mission of God is much bigger than just building houses. I found uh, this quote in, uh, by a, a missiologist, and I believe, uh, I believe this quote really um, kind of gets at the central point and the foundation of what the Missio Dei really is, and it's a little bit longer, so uh, hang with me as I read through this, but uh, this quote really gives us a good understanding. It says this, the classical doctrine on the Missio Dei is God the Father sending the Son, And God the Father and the Son sending the Spirit was expanded to include yet another movement. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit sending the church into the world. As far as missionary thinking was concerned, this linking with the doctrine of the Trinity constituted an important innovation. Our mission has not a life of its own. Only in the hands of the sending God can it truly be called mission. Not least since the missionary initiative comes from God alone. Mission is thereby seen as the movement from God to the world. The church is viewed as an instrument for that mission. There is church because there is mission, not vice versa. To participate in mission is to participate in the movement of God's love toward people. Since God is a fountain of sending love. It's a pretty cool definition, right? So although long, that quote, and and I actually took out about three-fourths of that quote. There was a lot in the middle there that gave uh, more of a historical context. If you want this quote, I can pass it on to you. Um, But uh, although long, excuse me, although long, 
I believe this quote gives us a really good working understanding of the Missio Dei. Now, what shape mission takes, how it's exactly done, who it's reaching, where it's done, all of those things are open for discussion. All of those things can be uh, nuanced and and can be uh, kind of creatively thought through, but the foundation of mission is understood as the redemptive movement of God toward people, and the church, or us, sitting in this place today, is the vehicle for that movement. All right? So the redemptive movement of God toward people in the church, us, as the vehicle for that movement. So if we believe the church is the vehicle, then what does the vehicle need to move forward? More than God's grace, because certainly God's grace is the thing that, that moves that vehicle forward. But more than that, in a practical sense, what does the vehicle need to move forward? What does the church need to move forward into mission? And I would su- uh, suggest that there are two things, people and money. Without one or the other, mission does not happen. Now, let's state the obvious right out of the gates. God is never limited in what he can achieve, but he has chosen to use the church as the vehicle. There is a sense of reliance that comes with that, that there is reliance on people to do the work, and that there is reliance on money to pay for the work. Money has been one of the primary drivers of mission since the very, very beginning. We see it throughout the New Testament. You look at Paul's appeal in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15. I'm not going to read it, but you can write that down and go back and read that. He's appealing to those people for money. Some of you maybe even remember uh, when Julius spoke last winter. How many people are here when Julius came in and spoke uh, with the Gospel in the City event that we have? Four of us total. Awesome. Um, so a guy named Julius, I'll give you a little context, a guy named Julius came, uh, is a professor at Moody uh, in, uh, back in Chicago, came and spoke and really walked through the entire book of Romans, and uh, he postulated that the entire book of Romans is essentially a fundraising letter, and that you can see strains of that throughout the entire book, that he is sending this to a group of people essentially trying to raise funds for his mission. We actually know that Paul was a tent maker. Acts 18 points to this, that Paul was bivocational. He was a missionary, but then he had a second job that helped provide for his missionary work. It helped offset the cost for him to be a missionary. So you're probably there saying, okay, Kevin, we get it. Paul needed to raise money. That makes total sense. But certainly Jesus was on mission without money. There is no way that Jesus actually needed money, is there? Because he was the son of God and the son of God wouldn't need money to do mission. This is the beauty and the mystery of the incarnation. So if we believe in the incarnation, then we believe just as much as he was God, he was man. And if he was man, then who do you think paid for everything that he did? He had to eat. He had to sleep somewhere. He had to have clothing He had needs that needed to to be provided for. If you turn to Luke 8 right now, 1 through 3, we can see that he and his disciples subsided on the gifts and resources of a few of the Hebrew faithful, women specifically. Luke 8, 1 through 3 says this, Soon afterward he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, 
from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. These faithful women provided for Jesus, provided for the disciples out of their means. So pause for a moment and ask yourself this question. Do you realize that Jesus' ministry was dependent upon others giving towards it? There had to be money somewhere. I don't think it's something that we often think about, but Jesus was as much as a human being as he was God, and therefore he was subject to an economy. He needed resources in order to live and to carry out the mission of God. Jesus was funded by other people. That's kind of a cool thought when you think about it. So why is this important? Why am I telling all this? Because I believe we need to understand that God's mission is propelled by money. God's mission is propelled by money. This means the mission of God will only be able to move in accordance with the finances given to support it and sustain it. In a practical and personal way, this means God's mission is dependent not only on our willingness to serve, but then also our willingness to give. So a few chapters later, after that Luke 8 uh, passage, we can turn to Luke 12 right now. This is going to be the scripture where we spend most of our morning in. Jesus is standing in a crowd of thousands of people. It says there's so many people gathered that they're actually trampling upon one another. So you can kind of envision this scene. It's a a, a crazy scene. People are scrambling over each other to get close to Jesus to hear. And he begins to teach specifically to his disciples in this moment about the reality of God's sovereignty and the unconditional care that God has for his people. And in the midst of his teaching, someone in the crowd with a covetous heart, it says, interrupts him and asks about a division of inheritance that he and his brother have. And Jesus kind of talks back and forth with this guy. And we're not going to spend a lot of time with how Jesus approaches this guy. But after addressing this gentleman, this questioner in the crowd, uh, and actually calling out to him that he has a covetous heart, Jesus responds and tells this parable. Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he told him the parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful, plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose Will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the fool was already a wealthy man, says the land of a rich man. So he's already wealthy, and then he experiences a bumper crop. Essentially, it's Bill Gates winning the lottery at this point. (laughs) Somebody's already super rich, and then they just come in to more money. He then has a choice of what he's going to do with the additional resources that he's come into. So what does he do in this moment? He decides he should tear down his perfectly built barns to build bigger ones, 
to then store his grain and his goods. And when he's done, he thinks to himself, well, now I can relax and I can eat and I can drink and I can be merry because I've amassed this wealth. And God speaks to him in that night saying, tonight your soul is required of you, which is the same language, uh, if we were to read it in the, original, uh, in the original writing, same language of needing a return on a loan. This man has been loaned something, and now that loan is being called back. Your soul is required of you. You see, the life you have freely been given is being called back. And God says, all these things that you have, these new barns that you've built, stored to the brim with your crops, where are they going to go? What's going to happen to that? They are wasted. Because the fool stored up treasures for himself and did not use them for the kingdom. You can see in the very, very beginning uh, uh, and then throughout this parable, uh, you can see why this man is a fool. Even in the language that he uses, my crops, my barns, my grain and goods, my soul. Egocentrism is what drove the fool's decisions. He couldn't see beyond himself. So much so that he isolates himself and makes decisions about his wealth apart from anyone else. When Jesus was telling this in this original context, people would have uh, heard that as insane. That this man is making all of these decisions without including the community as a part of it. The scripture literally says that he thought to himself or he spoke to himself in that moment. What should I do with my crops? Well, tear down my my, my fine barns and, and build new barns. And because his end game becomes... The building of a life about nothing more than temporal pleasures. He's a fool because he convinces himself that satisfaction, that purpose, that meaning, that fulfillment would come from the amassment of wealth. He's a fool because he's only concerned about the temporal wealth that he has and not about eternal gain, not about the kingdom. I think if you uh, distill this parable down, if you boil it down to one point, I think you could argue that it's a warning against using our wealth for building up our own lives versus using our wealth to build up the kingdom. This, I believe, is where it becomes real for all of us. Each of us, like the fool, has been given an amount of wealth. Some far greater than others, but we've each been given an amount of wealth. And we can either use it to build up our own lives, or we can use it to build the kingdom. Augustine famously said about the rich fool, the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. The bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. So how do we see our wealth? And this is what we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. Are we giving away our bumper crops or are we tearing down our barns to build bigger ones? You see, when our focus becomes our own barns, the mission of God suffers. Last week, uh, Russ began his talk sharing about a common experience that I think most of us have, uh, I hope most of us have, because I hope we all go to the dentist at different points, but uh, 
He talked about going to the dentist and sitting in the, in the chair and the hygienist comes and always asks that question about flossing, right? And Russ just was kind of like exacerbated at this point and just said, just don't even ask me anymore. You know I'm going to say, no, I haven't flossed. Nobody flosses. It's not a thing anymore. <laughs> the answer is usually no. My experience is a little bit different. <clears throat> I usually sit down in the chair and the hygienist comes in and does that kind of that first, you know, look in the mouth, which that has got to be so disgusting on many different levels, but um, sits down and, and kind of starts the examination and then says, oh, I've seen you flossed a lot in the last two days. Because <laughs> I usually approach it as the two days before my dental appointment, I floss 38 times, <laughs> making up for the six months that I have forgotten. My gums are inflamed and bloody. Because I've tried to make up for a daily discipline in my life that I have not been practicing. And without fail, the hygienist says, now you, you do know that this is not how flossing works, right? <laughs> flossing does not work if you only do it multiple times two days before your appointment. It's a discipline that needs to be practiced every single day. And I believe that principle is true in many respects to our faith, including giving. The kingdom moves. Mission is propelled when people faithfully practice a discipline of generously giving. Just like it's not enough to floss until it hurts right before going to the dentist, it's not enough to give towards God's mission only when we hear a convicting sermon. God's mission will not move forward unless we stop building bigger barns and seek continual heart change and begin building for the kingdom. A famous pastor, Robert Murray, and I have no idea how to say this last name, Mashayan or something, uh, but he once said this during a sermon on the topic, there are many hearing me who now know well that they are not Christians because they do not give or they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. The scripture is pretty clear that we have been given new life, a new heart in a sense. Now, I'm not sure that I fully agree with this sentiment. However, I think it is interesting and it, maybe it should give us pause to think about the fact that maybe our giving is reflective of our faith. In fact, I would say our giving is reflective of our faith. This whole series, we talked about this this morning, has never been about simply trying to get more money in our buckets. This entire series, for everybody sitting here, for myself included, is about changing the way in which we live. It's about acknowledging our wealth as a gift from God, and then using it in powerful ways to drive mission forward. The global and national stats about what could be done of eradicating suffering in our world if all Christians tithe is absolutely astounding. Look it up sometime. Do a quick Google search about it, and you will be amazed at what seemingly little amount of money needs to be gained in order to eradicate global suffering. If the Christian church stepped up in that way, serious issues in our world could be answered. 
I'd say in the same way, if everyone in this community gave sacrificially the amount of mission that could be done through this place into the city of Spokane, through nonprofits in this city, back into the city of Spokane, I would, be, I would believe is nothing short of astounding. If we can agree that money moves mission, then I think we would all say that giving to God's mission is a good thing. It's a thing we should all be doing. So then what holds us back? What are those things that hold us back from truly giving sacrificially, knowing that it drives mission? And I have a few that I think may, uh, some of us may identify with. So let me go through these things. These might be questions or statements that you would say to yourself or you would hear other people say. And the first one is this. Well, I'm not wealthy, so I really don't have anything to give. My first answer to that is refer to our sermon on 9-20-15. Listen to the podcast. For most of us in this room, I would flat out say that sentiment is not true. You may not feel wealthy, but in a global standard, you are incredibly wealthy. I'd say it maybe even a little stronger this way. If you don't have anything to give, then from a biblical standpoint, you are mismanaging the money which has been entrusted to you. Number two, I have worked incredibly hard for the money that I have. Don't I deserve to spend it how I would like? The answer I would give to that is refer to our sermon on 10.4.15. Russ, last week, showed a continuum. One end was generosity. The other end was entitlement. And we think that we can straddle that middle point, that we can be right in the middle. We can be stewards of money. But Russ was pretty clear in that moment, and I fully agree with him, that if you're not moving toward generosity, then you are moving toward entitlement. There is no static point. It's a a balancing scale. It's either going to be tipped one way or the other. So if you're not moving toward generosity, then you are moving toward entitlement. Here's a good one. I'm a college student. I don't have any money to give. Yes, our congregation is full of college students. And I know that a lot of college students don't feel like they're real uh, cash-heavy at times. But let me be really honest with you students. You have money to give. It's whether or not you're willing to do it. I'd say the more you make a habit of giving money now, the more likely it will become a discipline in your life when you have a career. I promised even the modest and faithful amount will propel God's mission forward. You may not have a ton of money to give, but it will move mission forward. It's just whether or not you're willing to give it. Here's one that we have not spent much time talking about, but I think is critical for our community, for, uh, for our people in our culture to know. What about debt? I have a lot of debt. Shouldn't I pay off my debt first? Debt that you have accrued should never affect your ability to give toward God's mission. 
Now, again, we have not talked a lot about this. We have people that will talk to you about this if this is the circumstance that you're in. But we can say resoundingly that we believe there are two types of debt that are okay types of debt to have. One would be a mortgage loan for your house. The second type would be school loans. Those things have been proven and shown over time to increase in value, whether it's the type of job you get or the value that your house can gain. All other debt outside of that is a function of spending money that you do not have. And if it keeps you from giving, then I would boldly say that your poor financial decisions are potentially hindering God's mission moving forward. Here's another one. I volunteer. Isn't giving of my time enough? No, it's not. It's not one or the other. Let us remember that God's mission is moved both by people and by money. Just as it's not enough to simply give money, it's not enough just to simply volunteer. Thinking you can tithe with your time is a justification for not having to sacrifice your finances. Mission will not effectively move forward if all we have is people with no money. The vehicle is propelled by both things, people and money. Here's one. And uh, I believe I end with this one. I'm not really impassioned by the mission that this church is doing. Then I would suggest you have two options. One, get impassioned by the mission that we are doing. (laughs) Or, it's time to leave new community and find a different community church in Spokane. One where you resonate with the mission that's being done. There are a number of incredible church communities that meet on Sunday mornings, meet on Saturday evenings, meet in homes, meet in buildings around the city of Spokane. There are a number of incredible church communities in Spokane, each doing mission in the way that they feel called. We want you, more than anything, to land in a place where your heart is stirred, where you are impassioned to leverage what you have. And if that's not in this place, that's okay. Not everybody will resonate with the way that New Community does mission, and that's okay. Our staff, our leaders are here to help you find that place. If you genuinely sit here and say, I'm not super impassioned by what you're doing, we will say, thank you for your honesty. What are you impassioned about? And let me connect you with that church in Spokane. You have to be impassioned by what you're doing, by the mission that's being done, by the ministry that's being carried out daily. For when you are, you will desire to give and give generously. Now, I apologize if some of my answers seem calloused. I'm not intending to be that way, but I believe we're to a point now where we can't really mince words on this topic. It becomes very easy to just uh, preach messages on money that are um, kind of touchy-feely and nice and, and, and don't really challenge us because it's a hard topic to talk about. But we're beyond that point. And sometimes hard words need to be spoken. We're a family, and families sometimes speak tough words to each other's. 
One of the worries in speaking on this topic is that we run the risk of demonizing money. That has never been our intention. Money is not the problem. The way that we handle money is the problem. The problem is not the bumper crop. The problem is when we begin to build larger barns. Mission does not happen in and through our own barns. It happens when we give our crops away. We are here. If there are people that are sitting here this morning that want true heart change, that want to understand and view and deal with money in a different way but don't know where to start, we are here. We are committed to the process for that. And it's not just going to be about we'll give more money to new community. What it's going to be about is where are you impassioned? What drives you? What gives you purpose? How can we equip, equip you to give money into that context? Our series on money end, uh, ends today. This will be our last talk specifically about money. But in the following weeks, we're going to talk about the mission specifically of new community and how it relates and intersects with the mission of Jesus. I believe this will be important for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's a unique season and time where kind of our whole family is back, students are back, and we can remind ourselves of the unique mission that new community, I believe, is equipped and called to participate in Spokane. We have a unique niche, and we're going to drive into that. We believe we're called into specific ways to serve the city in specific ways, and it's going to be great to remind ourselves of what those ways truly are. And in a second way, maybe more practically, it's a way for us to recommit, maybe re-engage with the mission from which this church has been called. Part of what we'll talk about in that is finances again. It will come back up. Because regardless of how aligned new community is with the mission of God, without money, Newcom cannot do mission. And when new community cannot do mission, new community no longer exists. This is a present reality that we have to discuss. We believe we are poised in the city to make a greater difference than we already are, but it will take more money. More will come on that in the following weeks. There are any number of organizations, both locally and globally, that are stymied currently because of a lack of funds. There are churches that have to shut down because they can no longer pay their staff. There are people not experiencing the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ because of a lack of money. All the while, many of us are sitting with the architect drawing up the plans for our new barns. We have a choice with how we handle the resources we have been given. Either we use it to build safety and security and abundance in our life here, or we use it to build the kingdom. My prayer for all of us is that we begin to use it to build the kingdom. Would you pray with me?